We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. All right, my guest today on Finding Freedom is Magat Wade. Uh, she is the Senegalese founder and CEO of SkinIsSkin.com. And she's here today to discuss uh, the power of capitalism in Africa and the pitfalls of socialism around the world. Um, I really want to focus, of course, on her story and, uh, you know, the obstacles and uh, different things she has overcome uh, to achieve and to find success. Uh, Miss Wade uh, also serves as the director of Atlas Network's Center for African Prosperity. Um, she launched SkinIsSkin.com. It is a staple at Whole Foods. It is a lip balm with a mission and dedicated to reducing discrimination while creating jobs and economic prosperity in her home country of Senegal. Uh, Magath, welcome to Finding Freedom. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for being here. I, first question, really just, you know, I gave a an intro of you in the, uh, the opening there, but why don't you give an introduction of yourself? Uh, tell my audience some, some background on you. Um, you know, what, what your life was like, um, growing up. Yeah. So um, again, my name is Magat Wade and I was born in Senegal, the West coast of Africa. So, um, basically I think when you're talking about, I would today call myself an entrepreneur, but when it comes to really what I do and what I stand for in this world, um, at the 10,000 feet level, I am very, my goal, my life's long goal and purpose is to, um, is to work for a world in which uh, black people, especially African people, black African people become recognized, um, you know, innovators, um, co-creators of, in the world um, of innovation in all the in all the realms of life. So in the way I have um, come to realize that that will happen is going to be through entrepreneurial value creation primarily. And, um, and then all of that obviously led me to. So I think when you talk about, hey, tell us a little bit more about you. Yes, I was born in Africa. I'm an entrepreneur, somebody who has a fond, 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 um, you know, um, respect and devotion to the concept of free markets and free enterprise. But I think the story I would like to talk to you more about is, is about how that came to be, because I was not always that person mm -hmm. who, um, not even uh, who understood the concept of free markets. I didn't even understand the concept of entrepreneurship for me, you know, you just get up and start a business and business and entrepreneurship in a way just can happen in a vacuum. And for the longest time I thought that, you know, maybe Africa, my, the region to which I belong on this earth, just happened to me to be a doomed region because otherwise, why, how come, you know, uh, the region is the poorest region in, on, the, on earth to this day? So it's more of that, that story that I would be most interested to share with your audience today because for me, it, it's, it's really, it is the bigger story of my life. Not sure if that makes well, sense so that, to you. That's that's the story that uh, that I want to hear. 
Hey, we're going to take a real quick minute here. I want to tell you guys about a really cool service. It's for expats. It's for location independent and international entrepreneurs seeking financial freedom. It's really for anybody concerned about their privacy, which honestly, in today's world, it should be everybody. Now, if you remember back on episode 308, uh, titled Living Virtually in South Dakota with Dallas, the Privacy Postmaster, during that episode, Dallas told us about um, his service called privacypost.io. Now, what is privacypost.io? It is a privacy by default virtual mail and business center. Now, the services that are included are virtual mail, a professional business address, privacy trust services, company formation, Portugal D7 residency, and virtual domicile in the privacy respecting an income tax-free state of South Dakota. Now, privacypost.io protects you from third parties, overreaching government agencies, and complicit cloud platforms invading your private personal and business information. Privacy is freedom of association, expression, commerce, and mobility. Privacypost.io is your partner in freedom. Go to privacypost.io for more information and make sure to tell them that you heard about them on Finding Freedom. That's definitely, I mean, that's that's the story that I want to hear. So how how did that how did that come to be? Take us take us through that. Yeah, yeah. So what happened is, like I said, I was born in Senegal, West Coast of Africa. My family, as soon as my mom was done breastfeeding, because, you know, um, I come from a family where the tradition is to usually breastfeed at least for a couple of years. Um, and so as soon as I was done with breastfeeding, uh, my parents um, decided to move to the, uh, decided to emigrate to Europe for in search of a better life, in search of a better economic life. So they left me behind uh, with my grandma because they did not know how that journey would go. Because, you know, although they did not have to go through a risky uh, journey themselves to go to Europe. Like, unfortunately, many, many Senegalese people have to do to this day, having to pack themselves into little fishermen's boats, trying to cross the ocean over to Europe in hope for a job, in, in, in search, you know, they're going because they're, they're hoping to find a job. My parents did not have to do that, thank, thankfully for them, you know, they were um, both, you know, quite good educated people and they went with normal and more, you know, legal route, which is less, which is not a dangerous route. So they were lucky from that standpoint, but still they didn't know how it would go and if it would work and if it would be, you know, so they left me behind with my grandma, but um, after a few years, when they discovered that uh, when they, f they finally felt that this was going to be state, they were, were going to be stable, they called for me. So, so, they, when they called me to be reunited with them, at that point, they were living in, um, in Germany. They first had gone to France, then to Germany. And so Germany is where I reunited with them. And so when I arrived there... How much time? How much time between... Um, so how long did you not see your parents for when, when, uh, when you were left behind and then met them in Germany? Yeah, it's something I didn't see. Yeah, five years or so basically, my mom, my, my mom, I haven't seen much between that time frame, but my father is the one who would try to come back anytime he could to come visit with me. So it was, uh, it was a time of five years, right? And so 
Behind their back, of course, um, I was very much a free ranch child. <laughs> I like to say that way. My grandma pretty much let me do what it is that I wanted to do. She she was a firm believer, um, I guess, in the more or less in what you guys here would call the Montessori model today. You know, like uh, this concept of uh, within a prepared and prepared environment, let the child do what the child wants to do, and the child, you know, learns at their own pace. It was nothing as, like I said, structured as you might know in the Western world, but it was very much the same principle. And that's actually a very pre-colonial um, Africa way of um, bringing up children, you know, mm -hmm. just, just working with a child's space. So in any case, um, it was around five years after, after, you know, since they had left, but I then went to reunite with them. And so when I arrived in, that, in my little, in my brain of this, um, you know, seven-year-old little girl, I looked around me and the first the first feeling that came to me I will never forget was I, I was just like how come they have this and we don't right mm -hmm. this was just simple question of how come they don't have this and we don't and I think what I was referring to was just this this, this ease of life that surrounded me when you know for example bath time came you know shower time came my mom would say hey my time to hop in the shower and I'm like I'm not hopping in the shower. What do you mean it's ready? The shower is ready. Where's the bucket of water? Because back home, you know, my grandma would have to warm up some water on the stove or on, you know, and then mix that, put it, put it in, the, in a big bucket and mix it with some cold water. And then some, you know, they would have to lift it up to the shower area. And there with a little uh, pot, I could then take my shower. So it's a whole production to just think about taking a shower and going to take, and, 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 you know, so here she's like, and then she would be like, I'm like, where's the bucket? She's like, there's no bucket here, you silly. Hop in the shower. And I hop in, and here I am turning, all you have to do is you turn the knobs, water's coming down, depending on how you turn the knobs, you know, like it's hot, cold, you can do it exactly what you want. And voila, you have the most amazing shower with not too much work to have to put up for it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa. Um, same thing with, you know, just like all of these paved roads everywhere, right? Compare back to back home, where most of the roads were not paved, sandy, you know, sandy roads, and always having your feet getting ashy, your shoes get ruined in no time. I mean, just, and it was like that about everything. You walk into these stores and they have AC and everything is so beautiful, so neatly aligned and, and, it, and the, the choice of in everything. And I was just like, whoa. So that, that question of how come they have this and we don't, eventually never left me it was just like one of those big questions that as a kid you can have and it never leaves you until you find the answer so it really led my whole life um and then the question became how how is it that some countries like mine are poor while other countries like like the united states like germany are rich that's what the question became and it was a question that if I didn't find the answer, I could not have peace. So my whole life was about finding that answer. So as I was on the, the quest to finding that answer, of course, I heard, um, I heard all types of answers to that question. Some people with a very straight face would say, oh, darling, it's not your fault. It's just because, you know, black and brown people, you know, the IQ theory, they're just not the same. They're not equal. It's not your fault. It's uh, you didn't win the gene pool, right? <laughs> and other people would say, oh, if you look, for example, at um, the, um, the sustainable development goals of the UN, 17 goals, uh, last, you know, you'll find that um, they'll 
for them, so some people will say, oh, you're poor because you're malnourished. And that doesn't make any sense mm. to me. Um, because Some say, mm. you, you're poor because you don't have access to enough education. I'm like, do you know that uh, most of the street sellers that you will see in Dakar, the capital city of Senegal, most street sellers are actually, or actually have some various type of PhDs and master degrees, right? And we joke in my country that your first job um, as, an, uh, as a graduate is going to be uh, to be a street seller. So this, this idea that, you know, it's because we're not, it, lack of education is what, um, you know, keeps you poor. It made no sense. So I've heard some people say, oh, if only we give you shoes, you're, it's going to fix your poverty, some shoes. So, you know, Tom, I, Matt, I've heard this nonsense. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I want to call John. you Tom, Matt, because of your last name, Matt, John, and I know John, so I go, so, excuse me, but, so, you know, John, I've, I've heard it all. It was all over the place, but everything we talked about made no sense, because let's say even the IQ theory, or, you know, why is it that the same, when the same person, same background, same education, we talk about the same person, when that person gets to leave, a place like mine, a country like mine, and travels across to some other country like Germany or the United States, how come that same person, voila, now can accomplish his or hers greatness? Same person. So at that point, it's, it's telling me very much that it's not about this person. There's something else here that's at place, something else that is not about this person, but it seems like it's more about this is to be in the place they came from and the place they just landed in so that was starting to hone in that whole thing of there's something else but um i'm just not hearing this and and i kept looking and eventually one thing leading to another you know we were in germany for a couple of years then after two years my family deciding that we're going to stay in europe after all they decided that it was time for the family maybe to move to france because it would be an easier uh, connection with my back home because we used to be a french colony so for many different reasons the family decided it would be better to go back to france so we went back to france and there you know continued these um did a business um went to business school in france and after business school i decided that uh France was going to be too small for my ambitions because while France has really done served us well from the standpoint of a good education and all types of good things that I will never, never, you know, spit on. I also knew darn well that, um, you know, social mobility in France is very limited, especially for people who look like me and have my background. Um, so, you know, uh, for, uh, as a, as a black women from the African diaspora, I just knew that my options would be very limited. And it was not just me, by the way. Um, my white French friends, same thing. If you happen to be born in a family that is not very bourgeois family or anything like that, your chances at evolving, at climbing the social ladder are also going to be diminished. Uh, it's just one of these places where the social mobility uh, percentage is one of the, one of the, one of the lowest. Hmm. So... I decided at that point that, um, you know, I did not want to be, uh, France was going to be too small for my ambitions. I wanted to, I knew that I'm a hardworking person and I wanted to accomplish what they call the American dream. And, you know, when you grew up in France, uh, it's funny because being black in France, a lot of the American movies, they like to show you besides the, you know, like the usual iconic movies, they like to oftentimes focus on, 
all of these negative parts of America, right? So for the longest time, John, you, be, you laugh, um, I was scared to actually travel anywhere from the South in America. It took me years country to even accept a stopover in Atlanta, Georgia, wow. because for me, Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia meant lynching, lynching of black people. And they were, and that my whole life, they made it sound like that's what mm. happens to black people in America. Right. So for the longest time I was like, Oh my God, I'm not going to these places. And, um, but you then also had these other movies, Starkey and Starkey and Hutch and all these movies where I would see this beautiful golden gate bridge and, you know, um, a lot of movies also like 90210, for example, stupid thing. But, you know, you watching this thing and as a young person, you're like, whoa, this is a place of freedom, you know, mm-hmm. young people driving cars at age 16. In French, you would never think of that. I mean, the, 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 the prosperity that you could see in these movies, in France, having a car at 16, yeah, right. I think even the bourgeois kids did not have access to such prosperity. And I think it's something that's important to say. Um there's the, the, the middle class in, um, in France, actually many people that could be considered not so like poor or such are actually, would be actually middle class in France. So just to give you a, a scale of the type of prosperity we're talking about when we're talking about America compared to a country like France. But in any case, so you see, all of it just made me want to go. I was just like, wow, there's this other place out there that seems A, so big, B, I see all types of people being able to achieve their American dream, um, this, this big dream. It seems like there I won't be limited by my, by my background. Um, and I wanted to go. I just felt I was just called by the freedom that was steeping from this place. And so I came when quick I question, could. Quick question for you. You were talking earlier about um, noticing um, really the, the system that was missing when you look at your, your home in Africa comparing it to, to France and Germany and, and the U.S., that free market system, at, at what point did, did you come to understand or, or come to realize that it was that free market that was that was the system? It, it, had, had you realized it yet when you started, you know, before you started to want to go to America? Did you understand why America was, was different? No. All I knew of America was that it was this beautiful place where it felt like People could come out of nothing and turn into, into you know, um, celebrities, turn into uh, big entrepreneurs, turn into uh, big, uh, you know, name it. it. That's more what I was attracted to. And I just felt free, right? Where kids can drive at 16 and they hang, can hang out with their friends. That's what attracted me to this country. So I came here and then I was first, I, w- I just finished business school in France. And so when I came, I first landed in, um, in um, I landed in um, Columbus, Indiana, middle of nowhere, America, <laughs> which I'm, I still love that place. Didn't have so many times there. And my friends would laugh. My, my French friend are like, oh, really? Oh, yeah, you see Columbus, Indiana, a place that has more cows than, um, than uh, more cows and churches than, uh, than people. And I said, well, but this is, this is a great place for me to get started in. Because first of all, this is where I had to learn to speak American. Because when I first arrived, I was speaking British. Because in France, you learn British, you don't learn mm-hmm. American. So this is where I had to really relearn my so-called English. And also this is, I'm glad I went through the middle of America experience because uh, it taught me something about Americans that later, because my life would take me to the coastal elites of America, San Francisco first, then New York, and today the third coastal elite, which is Austin, Texas, 
if I didn't go through that, I would never have known what it is to truly, like, you know, that Midwestern true mm-hmm. American values and sensibility. So I'm very glad for that. But eventually after nine months, it was very clear to the people who, who sponsored me for my visa for work that I had totally outlived um, and outperformed my, my, my job. I had outgrown my, my responsibilities in their company. I did things way faster than they thought I could, we, one could do it. I was, I think, a month and uh, four, uh, a year and four months in advance of what they were planning, <laughs> the time it would take me to do what they wanted me to do. So at some point they say, look, we could be selfish and keep you here with us, but we think you've got a much bigger, you know, future. And um, they remain my, my, they are still this day my first American family. We just came back from visiting them again a few months ago, um, a month ago, actually. So I'm very still attached to that place. But anyway, so I come to California. At that point, I left them then to come to California because during a trip back here, to California, we could say I left my heart in San Francisco. So I went back to San Francisco for love. It was the right time. <clears throat> and there, I started as a headhunter in finance, working for company, companies like Google, when a few people could pronounce the word Google. And it was this tiny place, you know, um, in the Bay Area. And then um, having to work for companies like Netflix and getting lost so many times when I had to go visit them as my customer you know, to a tiny little office in San Jose, right, mm-hmm. South San Jose. It was just amazing. And then no one could predict back then that these companies would become household names, right? But you see, while I was in the Silicon Valley, and the reason why I explained it to you this way, John, is because to show you that it didn't happen automatically for me to be like, oh, the free markets are this. It, it was just a process of, uh, in a way, experiences, but eventually led me to the ideas. Eventually, at some point, what I witnessed along the way some, I eventually came across people who had words for what I was experiencing, who had words for these differences and discrepancies I was seeing. Right. And so this is what I'm explaining. So I went there. And so I was there in the heydays of um, the dot-com boom. I mean, it was such a fascinating time. And really, I was very privileged to experience this, uh, this, this, this what to be an entrepreneur means, this ability to create something out of nothing. People meeting at the Palo Alto Creamery and on the back of a napkin, literally um, writing down an idea, sharing back and forth, and then, you know, started talking to other people and then discovering this uh, ecosystem of the entrepreneur made of the entrepreneur himself, of course, you know, the big four CPA firms, the, the lawyers, um, the VC firms. I mean, that ecosystem. And starting to understand that even there, there is something that uh, didn't, I didn't even see that in France, to tell you the truth, this, uh, ah, it, it was such a beautiful ecosystem and so vibrant. And so something already was starting to brew. And then I think I became very, um, I became so inspired by these entrepreneurs, by these people who just had this ability to say, you know what, I'm not happy about this or that, or I'm super inspired by this and that. If I'm not happy about this or I'm super inspired by this, someone else must be. Let's take it to more people. Let's build a company around it. Let's take this product or this to the greater to the greater um, population. Because if I feel this way, someone else is surely going to feel this way. So this, this 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 attitude of just not waiting for anyone and just just going for it that too was very was not something I saw a lot in France and definitely not much in my own country. Oftentimes, and so that was interesting. And eventually, I just took on to that attitude of hey. Let's do it. And fate made it around then that I had uh, gone back to Senegal. 
at that point, it's been um, four years since I've been in the U.S. and hadn't gone home yet. And uh, But when I went, I took my husband with me, who was French, and I say was because my husband, unfortunately, passed away um, you know, a few years after that. Sorry but to I took that. him home to show him where I came from. He heard about Thank you. He heard about this beverage I was talking about, the hibiscus drink and all of that. And we went home just to realize that uh, nowhere around could I, uh, you know, it's not like I couldn't see it, but what happens is in countries like mine and in um, cultures that have traditionally dominated, and we see that everywhere. We've seen that with, uh, even with Chinese, as well as with Indians before um, the Indians have started becoming so like prominent, especially on the tech side. But, you know, there are a lot of us who share this um, this uh, um, feeling of, um, you know, complex of inferiority, if I can call it this way. And the way it manifests itself is everything that comes from the West must surely be good. But that which is indigenous to us is something that's just that indigenous. So meaning it's still below, meaning you you, you want to hide it. You want to... Mm. You want to hide it because now you want to show the world that you've evolved. See, these are very complex, you know, um, psychologies. In any case, uh, what it manifests in is in a country like mine, it became that if you've made it, you don't drink the hibiscus drink, which is traditional and indigenous to us. You drink Coca-Cola, you drink Pepsi, you drink Fanta, products like that. So that's for the top of the pyramid. The bottom of a pyramid, right? The bottom of a pyramid, because all of us humans want dignity. The bottom of a pyramid is saying, we can't afford the West, the real, true Western brands, so we're going to go for the knockoff brands of these, of these products. And so you can you see how then in the middle, my indigenous product gets squeezed out. And as it gets squeezed out, in this case, this ingredient we use for it, the hibiscus, the women who used to grow it now have to move to the cities, have to move to the cities, leave the countryside behind and get themselves into the cycle of poverty. And um, even when you hear about sex trafficking, all of this oftentimes also has its origins in that. So in any case, when I saw that, I was very pissed. But remember, I got this little bug from California, from Silicon Valley, from the entrepreneurs. Um, something pisses you off or something inspires you, you do something about it. This concept of criticize by creating. The best form of criticism is by creating something. So that's when I decided, you know what? I'm going to start a company. It's going to be a brand. We're going to make it so cool and hot in the West. But by the time we get back in Africa, everyone is going to be like saying, we want to drink this. We heard that's a new cool thing to drink. Beyond Pepsi and Coca-Cola, this is what cool Americans are drinking. And I was going to do reverse colonialism on my people. So this is when, John, I started a company. Came back to the U.S. after that trip. I had a product in mind. I even had a, a brand name in mind. Now I need to find a partner. And at that point, it became clear we needed to set up two companies, uh, three actually. One sister company in Senegal, one sister company in the U.S., and, and, um, a, um, and a bigger one, and, and a mother company in the Cayman Islands for various reasons. There, what I discovered, John, is, wait a second. On this side, it takes me 20 minutes faster, depending on how fast I can type, to set up my LLC online. Mm -hmm. And within minutes gets my, you know, all my uh, documents from the Secretary of State back. Compare that, that 20 minutes or less, to almost, back in the days, almost two years. Wow. To legitimately register my business there. Here, I'm like, wait a second. I can, you mean I can open my bank account for the business? And I don't need... 
I don't need to have $10,000 or like some ridiculous amount of like that for me back then. Like I have to in my country. Wait a second. And then, you know, up till then, John, you have to understand, I thought that things were just, it was just the way it is. And maybe we don't have many business, as many businesses as we should because it was the way it was. But when I saw that, when I talked to you about living it by experience, I was in such a place to compare apples to apples. And there it started to down, 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 down on me. Because everywhere I looked, all the way even to the labor laws. In Senegal, if an employee is stealing from me, like I can tell you, I have this example right now. Um, one of our employees is taking us to um, the, the, the labor court. And the reason why she's doing that is because she has been, you know, we have a lab in Senegal. We manufacture our products. This is now my third company. But now we manufacture in Africa. We don't just source uh, raw material. We manufacture. So I hire, you hire people, of course. And in the lab, you have to be really focused and concentrated, especially in, uh, in the, at the weighing station, because one gram um, difference or mistake can mean a huge difference in the output the lip balm, maybe not looking the way it's supposed to look like, mm -hmm. not having the same texture you're supposed to have, it can be a disaster. One gram mm -hmm. different can make a disaster. So you have, to, you have to be very careful. There, no one listens to music. They're actually usually paired. So because, you know, you watch each other because sometimes you can just be in your thoughts and forget something. So it is a very critical uh, step of a manufacturing process. But we're told she's trying. she listens to music, um, doesn't do her work the way she's supposed to do it. We ask her many times not to. And also being a really um, not a team player, like many, many issues on the soft side, as well as on the hard side, uh, skill wise, mm -hmm. skills wise. And so finally, what do you do with someone like that? You have to let them go, don't you? So let, we let her go. And so basically she is going after us at um, the um, labor court because she said that um, I did not have a right to fire her. There, there was no big mistake because, so, because the way it is in Senegal, uh, pretty much if you fire somebody and uh, they say, I was not supposed to be fired for whatever reason, whatever reason, then they take you to court. And when they do, um, they don't even have to be represented by a lawyer, even the way me and the, the employer have to. It's uh, some type of union person that's going to represent them. And so anyway, it's a very complicated system. But eventually now, now I'm in this court thing for, uh, and it's going to probably last years of us going back and forth. And um, if you, the best way to avoid these things is to build a file, a file on each employee. And even then, that won't stop you from the issue I'm having right now. So basically in Senegal, because we follow French civil law, it's even in business, uh, you in a way are married to your employee for good or for bad. This concept of uh, at-will employment that we have in the US that gives me extreme flexibility I don't have in Senegal. In Senegal, if by I want to even close my company from one day to another and I say I'm going to close it, the employees can go complain to the court law, to the labor law, to the labor court and say, well, I don't agree that she had to close her company. So at that point, you have to convince the government, the, 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 the court in this case, that yes, I need to close my company. So, so <laughs> and they, by the time you do all of that, oftentimes, you know, there's going to be something that you have to leave at the table. So, so they can make you, the government can force you to keep operating your company. Even if you're operating at a, at a loss, they can make you stay in business 
because the employees have gone yeah. and said, yes. Yes, yes, we need this company to, to stay in business. Yeah. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. So you have to make those cases. And uh, like this girl, I know that even though she was at fault, I am probably going to end up paying her a few months in uh, damages, damages since she was fired. So you see how costly it is. Um, so, and it's like this about everything. So eventually I'm like, wow, I think I'm understanding now what the problem is because eventually I'm understanding you're poor because you have no money. You have no money because you have no source of income. A source of income for most of us is a job. Where do jobs come from? The private sector, especially small and medium-sized enterprises, the SMEs. So then don't you think that if you want more and more businesses to be born and to be and to thrive, that you should try to offer them what we call we should like with anything you want to thrive you have to give it a good environment but in this case it turns out that there are some very serious indexes that measure how hard or easy it is to do business anywhere in the world and there you realize on those indexes whether it's the world the doing the doing business um the doing business index of the world bank or the heritage foundation economic freedom index you see index after index that it is harder to do business in almost anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa except for eight countries, actually for all of the continent except for eight countries, than it is to do business anywhere in Scandinavia. It means technically that um, all Scandinavian countries, any Scandinavian country is more capitalist than almost any African nation except for eight African nations. And those African nations, by the way, are doing better than the rest of than the rest of the pack. That John was my answer. Mm-hmm. This is why we're poor. We're poor because African countries happen to have the suckiest business environment the world knows. And economist words, you would call that we have the least economic freedom. Basically, the free markets do not are not present. It's not in Africa. This was my answer. And if you don't have a good business climate for businesses, well, entrepreneurs are not fools. Let's take a quick break in today's show. I got a brief message, but a really important message. Obviously, in today's crazy world with uh, governments going tyrannical across the globe from Australia to Austria and even right here in the United States, um, it's more important than ever, not only to um, have your own personal mobility and uh, ability to move around to make income wherever you move, but also to protect your wealth. And our friend Mikhail Thorup of the Expat Money Show is the best of, of the best at helping you do that. And he has a podcast, the Expat Money Show. You should definitely subscribe and listen to that. But today, what I'm here to talk to you about is a free, some free materials, some free information. They're going to help you to sleep like a baby, knowing that no one will ever raid your personal Fort Knox. What Mikel has put together, um, it is a free infographic report. It's 19 international strategies to protect and grow 
your wealth. Um, it's going to help you to safeguard and grow multi-generational wealth for your dependents um, to get ironclad protection so strong that no lawyer will ever consider suing you. Um, really, it's going to make creditors you know, terrified to even look at your personal assets and it'll help you to defend yourself from governments trying to steal your money through taxation. As libertarians, we know taxation is theft. But guys, arm yourself with something that is going to help you to fight back against those uh, overreaching coercive governments. You can go to expatmoneyshow.com slash lions to pick up that report today. That's expatmoneyshow.com slash lions. And uh, go there today and get your free report. Curious to get your opinion on what you think really like the the root cause of that is. Um, My speculation from the outside um, would be possibly... Um, due to you know foreign money from the United States and other countries coming in, maybe causing some corruption in the upper level, levels of government, sort of incentivizes that system to stay in place because it keeps those in power as the haves. They, they get what they want. They, they live a, a fairly comfortable life. And there's no incentive for them to create policies and systems uh, that would help you know, the poor and, and middle class to, uh, to thrive. That's a very good, um, that's a very good explanation, but uh, let me take you back to go back to the origins of origins, uh, because this is something that trans- what you just talked about transpired afterwards. But you see, for most of us, including me for the longest time, when we think about Africans, when we think about the story, the history of Africans, black Africans in Africa itself, we tend to think about it only our, our, our reference point starts usually with slavery. I have noticed that for me, it was something unconscious. And I've noticed it's the same for most people. Mm. When do you think about Africa, the story or the history of Africa, for most of us, it starts with slavery. But there were people there before the white man ever set foot on the continent. And who were these people? What were they doing? How were they living? Well, it turns out, especially when you look at the work of... Um, there are, there's now a big body, uh, there's now um, not a big, but a nascent body of uh, scholars that have been researching all of that, especially from the economic standpoint. And my favorite of them is George, Professor George Ayite, Ghanaian economist, amazing, amazing guy. He looked where most of the people didn't look. He looked at pre-colonial Africa. And page after page after page of his biggest work, piece of work, which is called Africa Unbound, he's showing that basically... Pre-colonial Africans were practicing the free markets and the free enterprise. That we had some of the most um, sophisticated trade routes as well as, um, you know, trade trading setups. So pre-colonial Africans were free enterprise people. They were free marketeers. And the research shows it, and it's coming out more and more from other scholars, that that was the case. Then came slavery which we all know what happened and blah, blah, blah. Then colonialism, all of that. But see, towards the end of colonialism, when most African countries were about to get their so-called independence, we're not talking about the late 50s, early 60s. Remember, John, what was happening back then? We were at the height of the greatest uh, ideological battle of all times, um, as represented on one end by the concept of freedom, primarily, you know, represented by the Western Bloc, uh, facing the co- various concepts of uh, statism, you know, you know, 
communism or socialism as primarily represented by the Eastern Bloc, right? Remember, we were like in the Cold War, all of that. So these two big blocks on the, on the Northern Hemisphere were fighting for influence to, 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 to implant their, ide their, their ideology. And so they were fishing for influence on the Southern Hemisphere, you know, um, and, and, and equatorial, you know, place countries. And so, but when they were doing that, what happened at least for us in Africa, we said, we're now just coming out of colonialism which was a horrible time. Before that, we had slavery. So the African um, who fought for liberation, we're talking about Thomas Sankara, we're talking about Julius Nyerere, we're talking about you know, all of these things, um, Rollins in, uh, in Ghana. So them, they're just coming out of this terrible, terrible, terrible you know, phase of our continent. And now they're thinking, hmm, these two ideologies of fighting each other, on the West, we have a Western bloc, we have an Eastern bloc. Well, it turns out that the people who who enslaved us and later colonized us happen to be Westerners. Therefore, who their enemies are going to be our friends. Mm. That's when we went to bed with a social Marxist, with a Marxist socialist Leninist of the time. And as a matter of fact, many of these liberators, these African liberators, were actually trained in the Eastern Bloc. Many of us did not spend so much time in Africa. To tell you which. So, and they came together, almost all of them, without exception, maybe except maybe uh, Botswana, came together and basically there's now an allegiance being made to socialist, to social, uh, to Marxist socialism. Done. It's like the West enslaved us, whatever they're promoting must be evil. And in this case, they're promoting capitalism. So we are not going to go for capitalism. So when they did that, we made the fatal mistake. We threw the baby out of the bath water, period. And so now you have these African nations that are finally supposedly free and independent. And guess what? Most of them have socialist presidents. The few that are not socialist, the communist presidents. Mm -hmm. Fatal mistake. And as you know... <laughs> It's not just an ideology. Ideologies turn into uh, manifest into policies. Right. So we all know that socialist and communist policies have never bred prosperity anywhere. They still are trying, you know, but it hasn't worked anywhere. Even ch a communist China, when they became serious about wanting prosperity, they had to create the SEZs, special economic zones, which are among some of the most free market zones there are in the world. When they wanted prosperity, they to bite the bullet and go for capitalism on the economic for the economic system. So anyway, us we had done that. This is why for the past 60 years we had absolutely nothing to show for it. Nothing. And in the process, the West is looking at this and being like, oh geez, isn't it terrible? Look at the poverty over there. We got we must send them foreign aid. And so as they send the foreign aid, our leaders are thinking, wait a second, I can buy a chateau um, in the south of France. I can buy, you know, when my daughter gets married, I have um, 747s flying around the world full of my best friends and the champagne on the, on, on the cargo section. I mean, insane stuff. This is where the, most of the um, aid money goes, foreign aid. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the, and the rest of the money goes straight back into the consultants who are part of the aid industry. We're talking here, you know, all the folks, all the NGOs, who are involved in uh, supposedly, you know, the poverty world. Watch Poverty Inc. It's on, it's on uh, Amazon Inc. and Netflix or and many other places. It will show you exactly that poverty and aid is an industry. And we're talking trillions of dollars 
It goes to everybody except for the people who need it. So what happened in the process is all of a sudden through this process of foreign aid, what you have done is you have done two things. You take the incentives from the leaders to um, make sure that their, their, their constituents, their people, their citizens become prosperous because if we stay poor, the money keeps coming in and they keep buying chateaus. And at the same time, you also built a, um, a mentality of dependency uh, in, in a lot of people because, you know, that's what happens after 60 years of just waiting for, you know, or waiting for help. You know, you lose some of your, uh, n not everybody, thankfully, and people still have a fighting spirit, but damage it this way. So, John, when you ask, what do you think happened? This is what happened. Mm -hmm. And this is, so that's what my, my, my upcoming book called The Heart of a Cheetah is going to be talking about, kind of taking people back to our, to our root history, that we were free marketeers and free enterprise. And then after colonialism, that what happened there and how we sided with, uh, social, with Marxist socialists and how it got us to where we are today. But today, finally, I think the, the story is finally coming out. People are finally understanding, first of all, the relationship between prosperity and the, the economic freedom and the free markets. And they're also understanding that um, we, we, you know, like also what can be done about this. So I don't want to leave the audience feeling, oh my God, gee, isn't it terrible? What do we do? Well, truth is, there are some amazing, uh, well-proven steps that can be taken anywhere from policy reforms to just this radical concept of uh, startup cities, where mm -hmm. instead of trying to do piecemeal reform legislation, you will say, we're going to go to a piece of land that primarily doesn't have too many people on it. And just like Dubai, 110 acres of land, you're realizing that Sharia law is not the best law for commercial law, for commercial and businesses. Then you're saying, we're going to do the best in law type from around the world, which is primarily... Uh, British common law and saying we on this piece of land, we're not going to do Sharia law for business, but we're going to do British common law, hire retired British common law people so that the whole, they can educate the law. And from there, voila, within 20 years, Dubai, 110 acres of land, but we you know, had none except sand. And it was a desolate part of the world. Today, D Dubai entered um, the top 10 rank of um, the, you know, the financial international finance of the world. And this has proven to work anywhere it's been done. I was just going to insert there. I think that, you know, the Dubai is a, is a great example. I think that's going to become maybe not to that same extreme um, to create, you know, multiple Dubais, but it's going to become easier and easier for um, communities to really um, grow outside of, of their governments and create prosperity. When you look at what's happening with, with Web3 and DeFi and cryptocurrency. Um, so it's some, some really, really exciting times, I think, are ahead for the entire world. I mean, it's, it's kind of like uh, the phase we're in right now with with COVID in the United States. There's a lot of unrest and a lot of uh, Obviously, division, and I think it's like that in a lot of parts of the world, uh, created by you know how how the governments have reacted to uh, the, to the COVID crisis. But I think on the other side of this is the unimaginable uh, prosperity for uh, for the human race. No, I think this is um, I am so in line with you. That's why I'm so excited for all of us um, humans um, that happen to be alive in this particular time. This chaos, I think it's going to breed um, 
innovation, betterness. I, I think a lot of people are waking up. A lot of people who have been sleeping, fallen asleep, because, you know, prosperity does that oftentimes, especially in prosperous nations. It puts you to sleep. And then uh, poverty, for people who live in poverty or in po poor nations, uh, it renders them, you know, if you're so poor that it doesn't matter, you become almost like lethargic and you don't do much. And if you're so prosperous that it doesn't matter, then you just take it for granted and you just also fall asleep and you become lethargic as well. I think this has woken people up on either side of, um, you know, that they find themselves in. And um, people are questioning. People are, yeah, people are waking up. I feel like everywhere people are waking up and we're uniting in this, in this, in this being not woke, but awake. Yes. And so that I think it's, it's, it's really exciting. And we have so many tools at our disposition, the greatest of tools being this human brain and this human creativity. So I'm just, I'm just very excited for the future. And, and I, and I intend for my continent to make the right turn along with everybody else. And uh, I, I'm just personally very excited, but I think it's important for people to understand um, to have a proper diagnostic a, because only from there can you land on a good uh on a good solution mm -hmm. so so yeah so that's in a way my story um and it's really um that moment in my life defined me when i arrived in germany defined the rest of my life and that's really why i'm even talking to you today i if i never if i didn't have that question and i didn't pursue its answer you i would never i would have been living like most people thinking that well you're lucky you live in a, you're, you're in a rich country or you're not lucky because you're in a poor country. And yeah, you know, even many entrepreneurs I see today, they don't really question, they don't really understand that entrepreneurship doesn't happen in a vacuum. I see so many people in Silicon Valley who have created beautiful companies, but for some reason I see them not speaking up for free markets. And actually oftentimes I find that they don't understand. They don't even see the relationship between, between what they're able to accomplish and maybe the fact that they have more or less economic freedom. So, so I'm just finding it. Um, so I think that's why I love coming and speaking to folks like you, because it gives us once again, the chance to really take a pause for a minute and try to understand the correlations and connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And so many of us have not connected the dots, but once we start to connect the dots, what I have seen happen automatically is people get to work. And so the free markets are here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It is our only chance. Um, has always been, always will be. Absolutely. And it, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to speak with you here. I know my audience is absolutely going to love this uh, this interview. We'll have to have you back on later on too. Um, but be, before I let you go, if you would just plug anything else that you're working on um, or, or want to direct my audience to. Um, and also, I, I really, we really didn't get to talk at all about um, you know, skin is skin. If you could tell people about that, where they can buy it, and, uh, and all that good stuff. No, thank you. So yes, first, it's uh, Skin is Skin. You just go to skinniskin.com, as in love is love, but skinniskin.com. And then there you get to buy um, the lip balms, and soon we're going to have hand balms as well as some other products. It's all made in Africa because at some point I decided that uh, relying only on uh, just bringing in raw material from Africa was just not enough and that we would have to move up the value chain of production because that's where you have more money staying in the country. Our employees get better jobs, more stable jobs, and uh, they also get to learn world-class standards of um, you know doing business and manufacturing and just it's just great exposure for everybody in general. So I wanted to break that, that fat, fat roof ceiling, but I feel oftentimes, especially the, the people in the West um, who care about us had of like, we buy the raw ingredients from them, but we make the final products here so that's skin but beyond skin is skin i obviously 
advocate, like I said, for the free markets. It's really, it's really at the center of my life and my work. And so as such, I'm the um, director for the Africa Center for Prosperity of uh, the Atlas Network, the largest organization in the world um, working to reduce barriers of entry for entrepreneurs. We, we basically, we're organized in a network of um, think tank, free market think tanks, and we invest in these think tanks. So it is end of the year, Anybody listening, we would very much appreciate um, you sending funds um, to Atlas Network because the more you send funds there, the more we can finance more uh, free market think tanks around the world and, so, and in some of the most um, in some of the places that you you would know needed the most. Uh, obviously, many African countries. Uh, we've been doing some very good work in Afghanistan with some very, very courageous human beings who have, you know, who are running these think tanks in Afghanistan and other places like that. So this is a really remarkable organization. Again, um, think about them, atlasnetwork.org. And then the last but not least is uh, because I discovered a new enemy on my, on my uh, battle for prosperity in Africa, and it is the... Um, the fossil fuel, the no, the, the no fossil fuel, the zealot, the anti-fossil fuel zealots have um, manifested to be my worst enemy as I, as, you know, in my, my, in my work of trying to build prosperity in Africa, this silly idea, ruthless idea, reckless idea of trying to um, go cold turkey on fossil fuels uh, by 2030 it is it is an absolute death warrant on the you know economic growth mm -hmm. of African nations especially. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit around and and um, and just say nothing. We're not going to be the sacrificial lamb, you know, of this climate issue. Um, between between let's keep continuing fossil fuels where it's been or or no fossil fuels at all, even though renewables are nowhere where you know we could, they could be useful to us because they because being reliable and affordable, we know that renewables are not there. Well, there is still in between very senseless um, steps we can take, right? And I would like for, to, to direct us more towards those conversations. Uh, but right now, the anti-fossil fuel zealots are my biggest enemy, my biggest um, opponent on my uh, path to building prosperity in Africa. So we are working on an, on an offense campaign. We have some real clear targets of organization and uh, also people, meaning like brain powers behind these ideologies. And so my plan is to unleash the African youth and uh, women of Africa on one side. And on this side, the still sane people, and Lord knows there are many, many, many sane people, mm -hmm. but we're organizing them in a campaign so that we can bring um, light to this so that we can nip it in the bud and uh, make sure it doesn't go anywhere. Because um, there is just absolutely no way any one of us could justify um, hundreds of millions of people sliding straight back into poverty and many of them also dying because somebody... Um, is completely alarmed by the, by the climate and is saying to me, well, sorry, <laughs> we use all of this to get to where we are today, look at our prosperity, but you guys, sorry, it just happened to be that now we know that it doesn't matter. At, um, we, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. Earth matters, environment matters. That's, what, that's not what I'm saying, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But what matters here is that the so-called solution they think they found is not a solution. 
a solution that leaves 1.3 billion Africans. And I'm not even talking about the other people in the developing world, but, even, but just in Africa, a so-called solution that's going to leave behind 1.3 billion human beings is just not a solution. It's a crime and it's immoral and we can't let it go. So anybody who wants to join on that journey, we are actively working on it right now to make this happen. And we're just now, right now in the, in the war room, um, organizing. So for that, reach out to me directly, Magat W, my first name, the first letter of my last name, Magat W at gmail.com. Uh, and we can uh, help see uh, where we can plug you on this battle. It is everyone's battle. Um, I believe we will win it. But uh, I need I need everyone. We, we need everybody. We need everybody. And but we will win it. Yeah. Well, I, I for one am a, am a big supporter of fossil fuels. Um, I, I work in the energy sector. Big supporter of, of nuclear as well. And uh, yeah, yeah, the path that they have cut out. Yes, nuclear. Yeah, the path that they have cut out going forward, um, leaving. Or I, I don't understand why we're not talking about nuclear more as a solution glo- globally. But uh, either way, fossil fuels is a bridge you can't do it without fossil fuels so it's that's uh that's something that that's gonna, gonna have to be uh gonna have to be ingrained but um thank you for being so generous with your time today this was really a, an enjoyable conversation and uh we'll have to do it again sometime soon thank you so much john i really appreciate it thank you Thank you, thank you for listening to today's episode with Magat Wade. And you know, I mean, this was one of my favorite shows I've done in in a while. I mean, I I love all my guests, but this was such a um, it shouldn't be a unique topic, but it really is a unique topic. Talking about the economics of Africa and the root cause of uh, really what's transpired there and what has held that region back for so long, and it was really refreshing and educational to hear her uh, to hear Miss Wade's take on it and uh, you know it's really something that I plan on spending a lot more time looking into and learning about and uh, hopefully uh, you know fi- finding ways to uh, assist and help out in any way possible now a couple things to get through here uh, before the end of the show first things first I want to tell you guys about two of our Patron sponsors, Good Morning Liberty, uh, Nate and Charlie, two awesome guys, Good Morning Liberty. They've been killing it for years with a five-day-per-week Liberty podcast. Um, These are guys that really pride themselves in breaking down um, the news, current events, and putting it through a filter that makes it easy to understand, but also uh, help you to talk about the news in a way that makes you sound smart. Uh, bringing it to your maybe non-libertarian friends with a libertarian bent, uh, but not making you sound like uh, you're some kind of nerd who can't relate to people. Uh, Nate and Charlie have a a great show, and I really want to encourage you to go subscribe to Good Morning Liberty. Second, Tyler Colford, longtime supporter of uh, us here in the Lions of, of the Lions of Liberty. Um, he is known on the music circuit as Crypto Man. Uh, please go on to uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your music. Check out Crypto Man. He's got a lot of great music out there. He's a hardworking guy. He's busting his ass for, for liberty, and he's trying to bring libertarian culture into music. So please 
support a fellow hardworking libertarian. All right, let's get into uh, announcements and things of that nature. Number one, today, if you're listening to this today, it is December 30th, okay? So that means there's two days left in the year. And there's two days to get two months free on a Lions of Liberty Patreon membership. So the way you can do that, if you this is an annual patron membership. So you pay 12 months, you pay the chunk, and you get two months free. That's at any level from $5 all the way up to 50. It's incredible value, guys. So go check out what we have there. And this is for new and old uh, Patreon members. You can use it to upgrade too. And uh, people have been doing that. So I know we have a lot of new listeners. I'd encourage you guys to, we want you to stick around, obviously. Uh, why not take advantage of this deal, save some money, and uh, enjoy a year of the pride with your friends. It's good stuff. All right. And last announcement, maybe most important announcement, but there's going to be da, 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 a new Finding Freedom feed. It's been created. Uh, of course, your episodes are still going to be in this Lions of Liberty feed uh, forever and ever. Every Thursday, you get one published here, but you also get now a separate Finding Freedom exclusive feed where we'll have the show published every Thursday, and uh, also every Tuesday, you're going to get a little, a little throwback, a little remix. You're going to get uh, some, of, some of the, uh, you know, the top, the top of the top interviews from the past, evergreen interviews airing on Tuesdays with some of my uh, some of my favorite guests. So we'll start that way, doing that on Tuesdays. I don't know what we'll do with it down the road, but uh, trying to build up a, you know, a following and build up subscribers, all that good stuff. So when it does launch, I'm going to be you know really promoting it on my Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at John Odermatt. Please do. I'll promote, promote it on my Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. I'm just John Odermatt on those. So check me out there. And uh, yeah, please subscribe. And once I start dropping content, I just uh, recorded my episode zero. So it's going to be up uh, very soon. Maybe if you're listening to this on the 30th, maybe today or tomorrow. I know it takes a little bit of time uh, to get up on the uh, the Apple, Apple Music stuff. So anyway, it's happening fast. And I, will, I would very much appreciate your support. So that's that's all I got. A lot of announcements, a lot going on, a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, we at Lions of Liberty are very excited uh, for what's to come in 2022, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, get, making some making to some uh, events, meeting you guys, hanging out. Should be a good time. So hope everyone has a happy and a safe New Year. Get out there, celebrate, drink some champagne. Um, don't drink and drive. And uh, have a good time. And always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.